0: Well, good morning. This morning we continue our series through the book of 1 Peter. So I invite you to turn there with me right now. 1 Peter chapter 3, and we are in verses 1 to 7. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And this morning we see the power of godliness in the Christian woman's life. Specifically, the Christian wife's life. Now, this should not alienate, you know, 80% of you guys or 50% of you guys or whatever. Uh, this passage still helps the entire church, male, female, married or unmarried. This helps the entire church, helps uh, us understand what some of our sisters are going through, right? And that's pretty helpful as we should be in relationship with our Christian sisters who are in fact married. So if you are single, let's say you are a single man, this passage helps you know, for example, what to look for in a future spouse. Pretty important thing to pay attention to. If you are a single woman, you are reminded of what your Father in Heaven desires you grow up into. So just because you are not a Christian wife, do not think that this passage has nothing to do with you. So again, since you are part of the church, and since you are fellow members with Christian wives, this is certainly important for you. First Peter was written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, and in our letter we see that, and we have seen in previous weeks, that he writes to discouraged and suffering Christians who were scattered about in what we now know as, referred to as, modern-day Turkey. He writes encouraging these Christians who are going through various trials, he holds out to them the realities of salvation in Jesus, all that Christ has won. And just as belief in Jesus is to affect behavior, so then after addressing beliefs and blessings that come through Jesus, he then gets to behavior. You look there at 212, look there at 212, he says there, do good as Christians. Do good speaking the gospel and then living lives that are changed by the gospel. And you see there the purpose. It says, so that, huge purpose statement, so that even our persecutors may come to know Jesus for themselves. Of course, that's my summary of the verse. And then in 2.13, Peter helps us know exactly how it is that we can do good for Christ, living Christ-like lives. He does this by using a format called the household code. Here's a little bit of history and background. The household code was, was commonly used in writings in his day, as well as uh, writings in previous times before his, where the author would address the one under authority... As well as the one who is in authority. In this case, he leans into the ones who are under authority. And we have seen how Christians as citizens are to do good underneath, as they live under Roman authority. That's in verses uh, thirteen to eighteen. He then addresses Christian servants living underneath, unjust masters, even, encouraging them to walk in the footsteps of Christ, just as Jesus himself suffered unjustly. And then in our passage this morning. We look at how Christian wives can do good in their marriages. Even when they find themselves married to those who don't believe, those who refuse to believe. So, while it's not on the screen, if you're taking notes here again, we look at how Christian wives can do good in their marriages. Even when they find themselves married to those who don't believe and won't believe. Uh, now, the next time we come to 1 Peter, then we're going to look at h- how husbands are to love. Super important. But today we address the wives who are married to unbelievers. And in all of these situations, whether we be living underneath the government, etc., employers, etc., or these here that we look at today, we are encouraged to lean into following the footsteps of Jesus. So that again, so that Others may come to know Jesus for themselves. Look at First Peter chapter three. I'm going to read verses uh, one to seven. "Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that prayers may not be hindered. As we look at the power of godliness in the Christian wife's life, we come to point number one, the call of the Christian wife to godliness. Again, if you're taking notes, which of course I encourage you to do, you see there, the call of the Christian wife to godliness. You look there in verse 1, it says there, likewise, wives, or he's just moving on to the next person in the list in the household code, likewise, or and, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So there you have the call, there you got the command, be subject to your own husbands or submit to your own husbands. And then you have the purpose. It is so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. By the conduct of their wives. So there. the emphasis there is what is this jewel that is so beautiful, this jewel of Christian conduct that is to be displayed in the house. Now, if you're exploring Christianity, you may be thinking, what in the world did I get myself into? Wives submit to husbands? And then already you're looking at exits, maybe. This may be some strange stuff. It certainly is strange stuff. I mean, you can get kicked out of campuses, for example, if you are... If you say or if you tie certain things like gender to biological sex or gender roles and you're actually making a distinction between man and woman here right these things are certainly contentious and you can definitely get canceled but you see that we as christians we base our entire life on the bible so the bible is over us it is over us it is to rule us and it is good as opposed to us being over the Bible or rearranging certain things or, you know, removing certain things or pretending certain things don't exist there or it says or we say that things don't mean what they say and or they don't say what they say. But here we really ought to focus on this as some find submission to be a bad word, implying, for example, inferiority when the one submitting is lesser, lesser inherently, lesser in value than the one who is in authority, But let me be clear, biblical submission does not mean and does not imply inferiority or superiority, okay? So we're looking at a sub point underneath point number one. Biblical submission does not mean, does not imply inferiority or superiority. So we really got to get that in our minds. And we can see this in Jesus, the eternal son of God sent by the father to accomplish salvation of his people on earth, right? Jesus submits to the father's will. He obeys the father's will. Jesus prays simply, your will be done. Matthew 6.10, we can refer to Mark 14.36, for example. And of course, Jesus is not inferior to the person of the Father. In fact, we see that Jesus himself receives worship. We see also in the book of Revelation, he shares the divine throne as the Lamb who is slain. He shares Yahweh's throne as the second person of the Trinity. He receives this type of worship. Jesus is equal with the Father this is just regular historic orthodox christianity yet on earth we see that he obeys the father's will is he somehow lesser than the father the answer is no one is not superior and the other inferior in terms of the persons of the godhead even though in the plan of redemption they differ in role so when we read here that wives are to submit to their own husbands Please do not assume, once again, do not assume that the one who submits is inferior. Don't assume that the Bible teaches that the wife is inferior to her husband. Don't assume that the husband, for example, because he bears a leadership role and the responsibility and will be judged for that responsibility and how he carries that out, don't think he is superior somehow in personhood than the wife. Okay, that's the first sub-point here. Really important, we got to understand what in the world is this submission thing. we got to camp out on this, which is what we're doing in this first point, um, So according to the Bible, submission and headship does not mean inferiority and superiority of gender, gender roles. What we do see in the Bible is that the Bible affirms equality of genders. Equality of genders. And Of course, here as Christians, we're tying gender to biological sex. Both Adam and Eve, you go back to the very first marriage, Adam and Eve, both were created in the image of God, made with inherent dignity because they are God's humans. God had created them. God Himself had made them in His image to image Him, and they do so equally. And we see just as both were fallen, both also have equal access to salvation in Jesus. The Bible doesn't say only men have greater, greater, greater access to salvation. Nor does it say oh, oh, women have greater access to Jesus Christ. No, both have equal access to Jesus. And then you look there at 1 Peter 3, 7. He says both are heirs to grace. Not just men. They are not the only heirs. Both are heirs as they are both in Christ. That's equality in genders. The biblical understanding was so incredibly different than the surrounding culture, which believed in his day that women were by nature inferior to men. They said that women lacked the capacity for reason that the male had. And as a result, was given to poor judgment, given to immorality, given to intemperance, wickedness, greed, materialism. She was thought to be untrustworthy, contentious, and then as a result, it was her place to obey. Rooted in some sort of inferiority. That's what the culture said. But Peter here, he addresses it and then corrects it, right? Nowhere in Scripture does it teach that women are mentally, emotionally, morally inferior to men. But in God's sight, as God has made them in His image, He has imbued dignity into male and female as they are made in His image, according to Genesis 1. Listen to Galatians 3.28. It affirms this wonderful equality of genders. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you all are one In Christ Jesus. Now just to be clear, he is not saying that gender differences are obliterated now, like there are no distinctions. That is not what he is saying. He is not saying that gender is fluid. Uh, What he is saying is that anyone and everyone who actually repents of their sins and believes on Jesus, who died on the cross for their sin, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their social background, no matter their gender, they have salvation, equality in Christ. But here's the deal, though. Though husbands and wives are equal in worth, if we read the Bible, we nevertheless see differences when it comes to gender roles in the home and in the church by God's design. And you know what these roles are based in? They're not based in any particular culture. Peter doesn't say, well, we in the Greco-Roman culture, what we do is this, right? Paul doesn't say this either in terms of 1 Timothy when he's talking about gender roles in the church, right? Right? he's not saying well we today do this and maybe a thousand years ago it didn't apply and maybe a thousand years in the future is not going to apply we today this is why we do this not what he says gender roles in the home of the church are deeply rooted actually in god's eternal plan to save in the gospel that's crazy that means god from eternity past had this plan somehow i don't really know how but that's what the bible says The praise of His glorious grace, He brings about His plan. He had this plan to save through Jesus, saving His bride that is the church, His people. And then as Jesus dies on the cross for our sin, which is the gospel created by God, we were created by God to be in relationship with Him. We rejected Him. We sinned against Him. We created the problem God provides according to His grace and mercy and compassion. He provides the solution in Jesus The eternal Son takes on flesh, lives the righteous life. We cannot because we're sinners. He dies the death that we deserve because we were the ones who actually sinned against Him. And He does all of this so that we would not have to suffer judgment on our own or at all. But instead, Jesus Christ bears the punishment for us. All because God loves us. He pursues us in Jesus so that we might be reconciled to Him. He bears our sin on the cross. He bears the wrath that we deserve so that we wouldn't have to. How awesome is that? God is such a loving King. He has to carry out justice, but He lays that justice and punishment on Christ instead of those who repent of their sins and believe. Friends, this is the gospel. He dies on the cross. Three days later, He gets up from the grave, proving to all that the death penalty hangs no longer over His people's heads. But instead, he stands with arms wide open, calling all to repent of their sins. That is, turn, acknowledge the Creator, submit to His will, and He says, and you will be saved. You will know me once again. That is the gospel. And this is extended, this invitation of salvation is extended to anybody, everyone, no matter their class, no matter their gender, no matter their ethnicity or race. All can be saved. You, friend, too, can be saved if you would repent of your sins and believe on the gospel. You're forgiven of your sin, adopted into his family, where you know him as loving Lord, and you are reconciled to him. This is the gospel. And you know, friends, if you turn to Ephesians 5, go ahead and turn there now. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about how husbands and wives and their love for one another, the husband's love for his wife, sacrificial love that goes all the way to the death. And then the wife's submission to her husband pictures the reality of Jesus' love for the church and then the church's submission to christ so marriage if you're married here marriage is not an end of itself he doesn't say god doesn't say ultimately i want you guys to be comfortable here on earth or to enjoy one another ultimately there's a greater plan here in ephesians chapter 5 go ahead and look there and we are in verse 22 look there wives submit to your own husbands As to the Lord, this is also Paul. Here is using this household code as well. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. See that parallel? His body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their submit in everything to their husbands not because the husband is the savior let's get that straight because we're not he says there in 25 husbands love your wives as christ loved the church see that comparison again and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, you husbands out there should love your wives as their own bodies, as he loves Or he who loves his wife loves himself. Of course, that's pretty obvious. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. There you see too, husband's love is to point to Christ's love because we are members of his body. Verse 31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What is he quoting there? He's quoting Genesis, the very first marriage. But you know what he he says there? He says, this mystery in verse 32, Ephesians chapter 5, is profound. But he doesn't say, most ultimately, Adam and Eve. That's the mystery. No, that mystery mentioned in Genesis chapter 1 refers to, look there in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church, He concludes there, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And this is mind-boggling here. That means that my marriage with Melanie, as I love her, certainly don't love her perfectly, but as I strive to love her sacrificially, I'm portraying something, I'm picturing something of Jesus' love to his bride. Something. As I maintain my covenant of steadfast love to the death by God's grace as I am joined to her, as I seek to protect her, as I seek to, like Jesus, though I do it imperfectly, He does it this perfectly, but as I seek to pray for my wife, washing her with the water of the Word, I'm presenting her not to myself ultimately, I present her to Jesus as a more sanctified human being. Isn't that, that's incredible! So you have to know here that when we see these unique callings of the husband to lead and then the wife to submit, of course not to every man, but to each one's own husband it says it it pictures remember that mirror when people look at the marriage and even us carrying out our separate roles they ultimately see something of the glorious gospel jesus's sacrificial love to the church the church's glad submission to jesus christ that's the mystery it refers to christ and the church You see that by God's design, husband's husband and the wife's role are grounded in and are to picture the true or the greatest marriage, Christ's marriage with his bride. That is the church. And this submission, right, the church's submission to Jesus testifies to the goodness of the Savior. I mean, who would not want to submit to Jesus's leadership? Jesus who always has your best interests in mind. Jesus who is the perfect leader, who loves and fights for us all the time and sacrifices himself for our safety and security in him. Who throws all of his power and all of his glorious weight for our protection, your protection and good all the time, every time, all the way until the end. Who would not want to submit themselves and say, take me Jesus, I'm yours. I know the savior. You know the savior. So together we say, we are yours, Jesus. Again, take everything we have. Take every single idol, whether real or whether manufactured in our own mind, whether it be, you know, the the thought of fame or riches or glory, pleasure. We say, take it, Jesus, and you destroy it. We give it over to you. I trust that you are true satisfaction. You are where salvation is at. We submit our entire lives to you because you are that good, that satisfying, that worthy. So in tasting that the Lord is good, right, we joyfully submit. And even where we may not understand all of why God asks us to do something, we joyfully aim to submit. So Christian wives here, you now have the opportunity to testify to Christ's love and the goodness of living underneath his will, even to the non-Christian husband. Again, we don't do this perfectly. You will struggle at times to submit. Submission is certainly not easy. In fact, we're all under submission to someone if we know ourselves, our situation well enough. Submission is not always easy. And certainly husbands will struggle to lead and love well. But even in our failure, even in our repenting, even in as we turn back to Jesus, convicted of our sins, seeking Christ's forgiveness, seeking godly wisdom, you still testify saying that Christ's leadership and in his love is the best place to be because he is Lord and he is Savior. So wives of Evergreen, how are you testifying to Christ in front of your husband, non-believing husband? You know, if we think about these gals here, back to our passage, if we think about these gals, receiving Peter's words probably was not very easy. These women were probably a little fearful at times, Probably a lot more. Their husbands most likely repeatedly rejected the word of God, probably from the church, probably from them as individuals in the home. You look there at three one. Look there at three one. It says there that they did not obey the word. They hear it, they don't obey it. They reject it. And you guys know this, even even in relation to friendships, even outside of marriage. This rejection can sting because, for example, in the home, the man you give yourself to rejects your jesus and oftentimes as the spouse rejects jesus the the wife also is rejected as well maybe ridiculed maybe shamed maybe ostracized from the family maybe even spoken poorly of to the children maybe even divorced because of her love for jesus do you find yourself in something of a similar situation today sister god calls you not to fear though but to lean all the more securely into Jesus and in fact walking in Christ's likeness may be the very thing that you are ridiculed for. We are called to lean into godliness where you are under a leader that is the perfect leader, Jesus. Under the greatest authority that is God who is over all of us and who will hold everyone to account. And so therefore, God calls you to submit respectfully to your husband. Now, he's not saying that submission, again, ought to be total. So let's say, for example, you're ministering to a friend whose husband is calling her, demanding, forcing somehow uh, that the wife submit, or sorry, sin against Jesus in the marriage. Let me encourage you to encourage them to not submit in that moment, in that instance, to sin against the Lord. That would go directly against actually what Peter's talking about. As Jesus is Lord, they are to submit to Him, which actually means bearing the consequences even in remaining holy. Or let's say you're you're ministering to someone whose husband abuses his wife and somehow he uses some sort of Bible verse to try and justify his abuse of his wife. Maybe she might feel the need to submit to him regardless. Maybe she's learning to interpret the Bible. Let them know that submission to a person is not to be absolute. The only absolute submission is to be towards God. If the husband persists, actually, in this kind of stuff, he's already abandoned his marriage covenant. So if you are ministering to someone in that situation, or maybe they're working through just submission in general and they're finding it difficult, encourage them to come talk to the pastors. In fact, you come with them, and that way you can help them and walk with them in this difficult situation. In relation to the pastors, please know that we are here once again to shepherd the flock and help you navigate these complex situations. And even if you are in a situation where it is really challenging just in general to submit, maybe your husband might not even be in sin, maybe the issue really is with your own fear and your own baggage, again, come and talk to the pastors about it. We'd be glad to encourage you in the Lord. But going back to this situation that our passage was talking about directly, these husbands, again, had rejected the Word. And of course, for us, if we really love our spouse, of course we're going to want to win over our husband to the gospel. Who wouldn't want to do that? And they and you have probably had mixed emotions in their rejection. Maybe you give in to despair and hopelessness. Maybe you get sinfully angry at their rejection of your Jesus and maybe you. Maybe at other times, other seasons, you're bold. You're courageous. And of course, no matter what the situation is, we come up with our solutions and how we can best win them over to the gospel. Maybe you think, well, the gospel that he didn't accept, I'm just going to speak it a little more. I'm just going to speak it a little bit louder. And so you amp up the decibels thinking that'll work. But friend, you know, you realize that nowhere in the Bible does God guarantee that people are going to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus based on the decibel level of the preached gospel. If that were the case, then we would just go around yelling at everybody, and in fact, we probably would be like dripping water, causing people to want to run away and live on top of our roofs instead of inside of our homes. On the other hand, maybe sometimes in your discouragement or your despondency, your rejection, you just want to give up altogether. Give up talking about Jesus. Give up living like Jesus. Well, no matter where you are on the spectrum... Isn't it awesome that the Bible reminds us that we are never without hope in Christ. We are never without hope in Jesus Christ, right? If it is his word that really brings life and you are speaking the word and you have actually faithfully held out the gospel, then friends, you realize that we actually can trust God. We can hand over the results to God because we know that it is him alone who converts, right? Humans can't convert at all. But what we can do is to lean into faithfulness, faithfully speaking the gospel, sharing the gospel as we ought to, and then entrusting him to the results. But we might ask, right? You might ask, like, okay, Jeremy, I'm in this situation right now, and it's so difficult. I have no hope. You're tempted towards despair, which, you know, if we're real, all of us probably might be tempted to think that, uh, Whether no matter who we're evangelizing, because we love them and we want them to believe on Jesus. You might ask, well, what if they continue to reject the gospel? What if they continue to reject the gospel? That's exactly what our passage addresses we are reminded that there is also power in Christ-like living and godliness. There is power in the way in which you live, all by God's design. And that's why our passage calls Christians, Christian wives, to submit to their own husbands, walking with respectful and pure conduct, holy conduct. And just as God intends to use his preached gospel, he also intends to use your life, as a testimony and witness to the truths of the gospel. Just, in God, just as God intends to use His preached gospel, He also uses lives that have been changed by the gospel to win over others. Isn't that incredible? You look there at verse 2, "...even though they do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives." When they see, they observe, they're like, well, something is strange here. By the conduct of their wives. So you see how that that godliness can testify to, it can verify, it can affirm the power of the preached gospel. We know this on the flip side, right? If we live in hypocrisy yet we claim a gospel, we actually, what? What? We actually nullify our claims, Paul says in the book of Titus. If we live hypocritical lives in sin, we nullify our claims of the gospel. People say, whatever, this doesn't mean anything. Why would I need your Jesus? But if you're claiming a Jesus that Jesus saves, he transforms, and you live that way, then all of a sudden, ah, people take notice. This brings us to point number two. Point number two. Your conduct says something about Jesus Your conduct says something about Jesus. Godliness, again, testifies to, it verifies, it affirms the power of the preached gospel, all by God's design. For all Christians, you realize that when we continue trusting in Jesus and walking with Jesus, especially, especially in difficult circumstances, you communicate, you shine the truth that my Jesus is worth following, and he has called me to be holy and pure. He has the words of life, and I love them, and so I'm going to follow them. And all those who watch you, remember, all those who watch you end up thinking, well, this Jesus is really important to me, or this Jesus guy is really important to you. Maybe I should get to know him. Two of my really good friends Oscar and Caesar, they're brothers. They told me a story about their mom and her marriage, and they are good with me talking about this publicly. Their, mother, their mom is a Christian, and the dad claimed to be. They had come over from Oaxaca, Mexico, started a new life here in Los Angeles, and uh, you know I'm sure they came over with great hopes of starting their new family. But eventually in their marriage, their parents' marriage, the dad cheated on mom with another woman, and it was ugly. Of course, there was a lot of heartache on the mom's side, her side, because of the husband's infidelity. But not only that, as a Christian, she knew that her husband was not repenting and turning back to Jesus. Eventually, he left his wife and his three children, went on to start a new life, and with a new family. With this mistress. If you were in her, her shoes, how would you feel towards your husband? How would you feel towards the mistress? Well, one day the mom ran into the mistress and instead of giving her full and rage, I made that up, I don't even know what, what that would look like, or living in bitterness and anger, she told the mistress that Jesus says, that I'm not supposed to live in anger, but I'm supposed to love others. And so she went on to let the mistress know that she had no anger for her in participating in the affair. And instead she shared the gospel with her, to her, to the mistress. She shared the gospel with the very woman who helped lay the axe to her family. In love. Not surprisingly, the mistress blew her off at the time. Well, you know what happened. Just as the husband eventually moved on from her, the first wife, Oscar's mom, so he eventually moved on from the mistress and his second family. But guess who was there to minister Christ to the mistress? Oscar and Caesar's mom. And in God's sovereign providence, God used the, bro- the mistress's broken relationship with the man, God used Oscar's mom as she ministered Christ to her and the mistress became a Christian. And now get this, Oscar's mom and the mistress are friends and they go to the same church. They fellowship together in the same church, trusting in the same Jesus, having been betrayed by the same man. How's that for the power of the gospel? You see the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of Christ-like living that God uses for his good, according to his will, to win people to him. And of course, the mom's ministry is not over yet. She is steadfast. During the height of COVID, Oscar and Caesar's dad got COVID. Uh, He ended up going into the hospital, was on a ventilator for the week, for the whole week, that, that type of thing. Oscar and Caesar were evangelizing him, sharing the gospel with him through FaceTime as the hospital staff would allow. Everyone thought he was going to die. But by God's grace, he lived. And of course, recovery post-COVID was super difficult having come from that situation. But guess who was there to help him recover? His next mistress was not around. In fact, that one, while Oscar's dad was on the ventilator, was try- that mistress was trying to take all of his money. But you know who was around? His first wife and their Christian children to help care for him, to help pray for him, read the Bible with him, help him recuperate. The dad knew that something is different about this wife who is a Christian and my children, who are Christians. So much so that he genuinely seemed, during these Bible studies, to want to know more about Jesus. Now, the reality is he has not become a Christian. He has not repented of his sin. In fact, he went back to living for himself after a stint. He, I guess he gained confidence, and he's now at, continues to act as if he were God, which is the substance of sin. But in it all, Oscar's mom's ministry remains faithful. She and her family remain prayerful. The family remains faithful, still reaching out to him, still witnessing to him, because this is what Christ has called them to do. As she remained faithful to Christ, the mistress witnessed something beautiful, didn't she? This Jesus you believe in, this Jesus that changed you, this Jesus that you follow, will you tell me more about him? That's amazing. The mistress becomes a Christian. Her her child, right, from this other family, her child becomes a Christian. And now the brothers, who have two different mothers, fellowship together as they are believers, all because of Oscar's mom's faithfulness to Jesus. And her witness continues, because here I am telling 400 more people about how her conduct was used by Jesus to bring more people to know Jesus. And we continue that it would work in this way, or God would work in this way, to her first husband, all by God's design. The question is, right, knowing that God uses such powerful godliness and faithfulness in Christian husbands' lives and in this passage, Christian wives' lives, how is it that we here today can testify well in our conduct? So Christian wife, how is it that you, as you even seek to submit... To your non-christian husband where appropriate where he's not calling you to live in sin etc how is it that you can testify well in your conduct here's the simple answer you have to aim to please god first and foremost you have to aim to please god first and foremost i know it's super obvious um, but oftentimes i think that we are tempted to simply do what pleases him Whatever he desires, that's my M.O. That's what I'm going to do. That's what, how I'm going to win, win him over. To live according to his will. To do what is pleasing in his sight. But is that what our passage tells us to do? Is that what our passage tells you, Christian wife, to do? Our passage says, no, instead, the Christian wife is to do what is pleasing. Look there. In God's sight. It is in God's sight that you are to live under Seeking to please Him ultimately and first and foremost. And I think that's why He brings up this aspect of beauty. She you notice there He brings us up this aspect of beauty? Perhaps these Christian wives were thinking wrongly that they're going to win over their non-Christian husbands or win them to Christ by doing what their husbands found attractive. Relying on worldly beauty. Now this is not hard to imagine. If a husband rejects Jesus, right? there's a good chance that the husband eventually is going to reject the wife. And so maybe a wife might be tempted to make themselves more attractive in the world's eyes to win over their worldly husbands. Maybe even an effort to make Christianity you know, more attractive somehow or the Christian life more attractive in, in the husband's eyes. Uh, and so they rely on, look there in verse 3, the external, the outward adorning themselves, relying on the braiding of hair, the expensive jewels, the gold and whatnot, and then relying on the clothing they wear. Now, He is not forbidding braiding your hair. Girls, don't worry. <laughs> if you enjoy braiding your hair, He's not forbidding that. He's not forbidding wearing expensive jewelry in and of itself. He's not forbidding the wearing of clothing. Thank God we all wear clothing, right? He's not forbidding those things. He's forbidding relying on those things, the external to do what only God can do. But you see here, Christian, in our passage, God wants you concerned with what? What? It's living before Him and doing what is pleasing in His sight because you love pleasing the Father. Look at verse 4. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious or costly or valuable. You see how we are pointed away from the external, that which the world loves, and pointed to the eternal, or pointed to the internal, that which God appreciates. Imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Gals, this is so important. Whether you are married to a non-Christian, married to a Christian, Whether you are a single gal hoping one day to be married, even if you feel like you have the calling of singleness and you want to dedicate yourself to the Lord. This is important to every girl here. You ever hear the saying, what you win them with is what you win them to? Normally I I hear the saying used in regards to church evangelism, right? If we cater our church service to entertain those who don't believe with the stuff That those who don't believe find entertaining, then chances are, of course, that we're gonna win them to entertainment, right? But the same thought can be applied to you gals as you interact with your spouse. Or maybe as you just seek to interact with others out there in general. What you win them with is what you win them to. So if you use the world to win your man, then you really, you realize that you really could be winning him over to the world all that is fading, all that is temporary, all that will fail. And Proverbs 31 30 says charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting. And you know how it finishes. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And God says that his intention again is to use you Christian wife, you Christian woman You who fear the Lord to testify to His power to save in Jesus Christ. And then He saves people by His grace. He changes you. He has changed you by His grace. And He uses people like you by His grace as He causes spiritual beauty, the beautiful fruit to spring up in your lives and testify to the powerful work of Christ who delivers. God intends to use your Christ-likeness As you testify, it is good to be with my Jesus, my true head. It is good to be underneath His will and to follow Him. In Him do I trust. Forget the beauty that fades. If you want to learn a lesson, gals, and think about beauty, just go all the way to those who are faithful, maybe your grandparents who are walking with the Lord, and just examine what kind of beauty do you actually appreciate in them as their bodies are failing and all going in one direction. You can look at the middle aged folks too because we bear some of those evidences. Relying on such beauty that only lasts for a moment is not worth it. Entertainers will tell you that. Taylor Swift can tell you that. Katy Perry will tell you that. None of those things at the end of the day are to be relied on because those things in and of themselves do not please the Lord because they are not the imperishable beauty that He is working inside of you. Isn't that interesting? The fruit of the the Spirit is not winning beauty pageants. So why rely on that? How much time might you spend? Now for dudes, you can think about how much time you spend in the gym maybe. Or some of you guys who might be tempted to be flexing in the mirror. How much time do we think about that or for girls beautifying oneself? And how much time do you spend every single day leaning into pursuing what pleases my Father in heaven? Because that's what I'm going to do. That's a godly person right there. That's an attractive woman who's going to be with the man's side, by the man's side, all the way until the end. If you use worldliness to win your man over it, the reality is, someone else more beautiful is going to come along. So why trust in that? Why not lean into the imperishable beauty that God Himself cultivates by His Spirit and you rely on that? The godly man will stick with that woman all the way until the end. Now again, with all this language of submission and respect and a gentle and quiet spirit, some of you guys might say, I don't want to be a doormat. I ain't being no doormat here. He's not talking about being a doormat. He's talking about a woman, or he is not talking about a woman who has no opinions, a woman who has no intellect, a woman without strength, a woman incapable of leading others. He's not talking about that. God's daughters must be strong. To rely on God's plan and not the world's plan requires a Christian woman to be of great character, great Christ-like character. A woman confident in the gospel is not a weak woman who stores up all her hope in her husband as if she thinks, oh, if my husband leaves then all of a sudden I'm worthless. The husband is not ultimate because the woman will know, as she's confident in the gospel, that God is ultimate. Not only does a a, a godly woman need to not hope in her husband, She also needs to not hope in herself, right? How's that for strength of character? Not even relying on her own beauty. A godly woman like Oscar's mom does not hope in themselves. Strong Christian women do not despair when they are not the fulfillment of their husband's greatest affections. A grand hope for some women is that their husbands would forever glory in them right they think sadly that they must be the they must be the object of their husband's affections all the time 24/7 the object even of his lust some may be more zealous to see their husband's glorying in them than glorying in jesus through the reading of the word through prayer through serving the needy serving the church loving others for the go- the gospel's sake godly women strong of character know that it is Christ who deserves all of the glory. Godly women of strong character know, too, that the ultimate goal in marriage is not even having a comfortable marriage. Because you can be comfortable and avoid a whole lot of sin. You can be comfortable, to some degree, while not addressing the most important things of life. You can be relatively comfortable by not addressing sin or your husband's motivations or your husband's desires. Godly women of strong character don't just want to be comfortable, but instead they embrace their responsibility of being a change agent in their husband's life. While submitting respectfully with a a gentle and quiet spirit, they also bear the responsibility and the charge to wisely, lovingly, daringly, encourage her husband to repent of his sins and turn to Christ when she sees him sinning, even if it brings a little bit of discomfort in her own life. Gals, you realize that the men of Evergreen and the future men of Evergreen, though we too are saved by grace, we still wrestle with sin. The men of Evergreen need strong Christian women who hope not finally in us, who hope not in themselves, or even in a comfortable marriage, but in God overall. Look there at verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. I love that adornment language there. What are they adorning themselves? It's not with, a, not with nice dress to win over somebody. It's not with the jewels. It's not with the fancy hair. Instead, they adorn godliness. You guys know Sarah. Sarah is the great Old Testament matriarch of God's people, wife to Abraham, the patriarch of God's people. passage refers to Genesis 18, 12, where she was told that her and her old husband Abraham would have a child. And she responds here with respect for her husband, calling him Lord, or the equivalent to sir. The point, though, is that she respected her husband and submitted to him. She's strong in Jesus Christ. And for you, friend, to be strong as a Christian wife, no matter the circumstance, whether you are married to a non-Christian or married to a Christian who, of course, sins and you still got to trust in Jesus, whether you are waiting to be married or whether you're facing the pressure from parents who want you to be married, even though you may be thinking about embracing the calling for singleness, which, of course, if you are single, then in some ways you have the gift of singleness right now. For you to be strong, girls, gals, Christ, needs to have your heart. And the more Christ has your heart, the more you hope in Christ. The more you hope in Christ, the more you delight in what He finds of greatest worth in your life. That is Christ-likeness, and that is godliness. Godliness is what He finds precious, costly, valuable. So why bother with the world? Relying on it, I mean. Why bother relying on what the world says might guarantee you security in the future or someone's affection in the future, friends? If you want to gain the greatest affection of all, that it comes from Christ, the Savior, and He calls you to wear the allure of heaven and to trust ultimately—not in a man, not in yourself, not even in marriage—but in Jesus your true bridegroom. And no matter the situation, even situations that are uncertain or frightening, friends, you realize that Christ is the one you are to trust, and He calls you to continue doing good, shining for Him, even in front of your non-Christian husband, if you have one, and in everything you do, through your respect of your husband, through submitting to him, through pursuing a gentle and quiet spirit, strong in character, trusting in the Lord, As Jesus says, He intends to use your Christ-likeness to affirm His truth in the preached gospel. Matthew 5.16 says this, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Gals of Evergreen, to conclude here, you want to leave a lasting mark on your husband? Make sure he knows that through your words and in your obedience to God's Word that you are God's daughter first and foremost. You are God's woman, first and foremost. In everything you do, in everything you do, pray that you would do it for Jesus, even where fear rises up in your heart. As you continue to trust in Christ, you realize that you are taking your very own place in a long line of godly women with Sarah as your godmother so to speak she too hoped in god like all of the other holy women of the past and she look there in verse six she and you walk in her footsteps do not fear that is anything do not fear anything that is frightening you are her children if you walk in such godly footsteps when you do not fear anything that is frightening not because your situation is not frightening but because God is with you. For you and for all Christians, our hope finally is God over all, Yahweh, and God who is with us in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we all confess that we rely on the world's tactics to fulfill our own desires, to quell our fears, to guarantee some outcome that we might want in the flesh, or even guarantee perhaps a good thing that You hold out in Scripture. We ask, Lord, that You would indeed forgive us for these things where we find ourselves pursuing what pleases the world instead of what pleases the Father. We confess, Lord, that we are more worldly at times than Christ-like at times. So we pray, God, that by Your Spirit You would, in fact, take our hearts, conform them more into the image of Your Son so that we might testify to the goodness of of being under Christ and living in his will and knowing him as our loving savior may the world see us the christian wives especially and christian gals especially may they see what we hear what we say and then see how we live and know that we do not glory in the beauties of the world or the things that the world has to offer but instead we glory in the beauty that is Christ Help change our affections, Lord, because we know that apart from You, our affections will not be changed. So change them, we pray. We ask, Lord, that we would, in fact, find these things to be of greatest value that is the fruit of the Spirit. Biblical womanhood and biblical manhood. We pray, God, that You would take Your Word that we looked at here and that You would implant it in our hearts and that we would hope finally in You and seek to live our lives before Your eyes and not the world's eyes. Help us rely not on a spouse or a relationship or ourselves or our own beauty or strength, but help us rely finally in Your good grace to us in Jesus. We pray, God, that we would do this winsomely, confidently, such that the world would be curious to know more about our God who has saved us and changed us. We thank You too for the wonderful examples in our lives. We thank You for our mothers who modeled it, certainly not perfectly, but who model it even now, our grandmothers and great-grandmothers. We pray, Lord, that on our hearts would be thankfulness and gratitude such that we would want to find these women and appreciate them for walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Help us be wise with our words as we encourage godly women who have so sacrificed so much of themselves for us that we might know Christ ourselves. In your great name we pray these things. Amen.